Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, August 19th. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, uh, Tiffany, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Hi. We are missing uh, Gabby and Erica today, so we miss them, and we hope to uh, have them back soon. Um, so today, uh, our topic is pain, pain, go away. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the opioid epidemic uh, and related topics. So overdoses from opioid abuse uh, hit an all-time high recently. Uh, in 2014, uh, more than 47,000 people died from a drug overdose. Uh, heroin use has jumped 63% in an 11-year span, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, of course, pre- prescription drugs, pharmaceuticals like Vicodin, Percocet, cause about 17,000 deaths per year. <clears throat> so we're wondering why so many Americans are turning to drugs uh, and why are they all in so much pain? Uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about the hidden hands involved in the rise of drug use and abuse in the, UN, in the United States uh, and why pain management is such a big business. It seems like kind of a, a no-brainer. Like, well, of course, people are in pain and they want it to go away. Uh, but it is a little more complex than that. It's not that black and white. Um, so we want to get into that uh, topic. And um, I guess let's start off by just generally talking about um, the uh, the dangers involved in, in using opioids uh, for pain relievers. Uh Tiffany, in your in your professional experience, mm. uh, have you like what are your observations on this? Do you see like most people basically just just go right to the painkillers and don't try any alternative methods or anything? I think that's just part of a lot of people's nature. Is they want a quick fix, they want a pill yeah. for every ill, they just want it to go away. Uh, I don't know. People just kind of have a hard time dealing with discomfort and they have limited information about alternatives and they're kind of really bought into the whole medical model. So they go to their doctor and they get a prescription. Um, a lot of the places that I worked with when I first started nursing, um, they gave out the pain pain medications pretty freely i mean it was a hospital setting so people were in you know chronic well not chronic and acute pain but um like maybe they just had surgery so that's understandable um Mm. but in outpatient settings it was sometimes kind of given out a little freely too and they try to crack down on it and try to you know come up with some new standards like they could only give certain pain medications to uh terminal cancer patients and then the the other patients who had chronic pain like back pain or things like that they would you know kind of protest and you know they hated it because they'd been on certain pain medications for years and of course they didn't want to stop it they developed a certain level of dependency and in other Mm -hmm. places i worked with you know they just say straight out don't even ask for narcotic pain medications because we do not give that out um a lot of places um you have to come up with a pain contract like before you start on a pain medication you have to sign a paper saying that you're going to take it as it's uh, prescribed as directed not take any more you have to take drug tests every now and then when you come in to get your prescription and if you test positive for something else they will 
stop giving you the medication. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, I guess it just depends on the doctor that you go to, you know, what facility that you go to, like the VA or if you have your own private doctor. But um, from my reading, it shows that, you know, I mean, we hear about these pill mills, but most mm. painkiller prescriptions come from family doctors. So, yeah. yeah, there was one of our articles that we were looking at here. Painkillers do more harm than good, um, especially for headaches and back pain. Uh, there was some interesting stuff in here. Uh, just to read a couple quotes, um, whereas there is evidence for significant short-term pain relief, there is no substantial evidence for maintenance of pain relief or improved function over long periods of time without incurring serious risk of overdose, dependence, or addiction. Yeah. Uh, that uh, is quoted from Time magazine. The opioids can backfire in excessive doses the same way that neurons become oversensitized to pain and hyperreactive. High doses of opioids could prime some nerves to respond more intensely to pain signals rather than helping the, to modulate their reaction. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed that, too. Like, patients that I've had who've been on pain medications, I mean, none of them, they take it for a while, they think it's just going to be short-term, but I've known people who've been taking pain medications for years and years and years. And, of course, their pain Mm. never gets any better. It's never fully controlled. They never say that their pain is zero out of ten. Like, a good day of pain for them is maybe like a four out of ten. Yeah, the pain just never subsides, and they always have to go up on their prescription, and they're always in pain. So it's yeah, basically, I mean, they call it pain management, and that's really all they can do. It's not pain relief. It's management. Yeah. Well, especially since one of the side effects is making people more in uh, sensitive to pain. Like, the, you know, you, you start taking these... Uh, these opio- opioids to um, to kind of get rid of the pain, and I guess that that uh, that works while kind of it's in the system. But then, once it's out of the system, you are more um, sensitive to pain. So that other, you know, whereas something maybe you know would have uh, caused a mild amount of pain before, now you're suddenly more sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a, you know that that's a pretty terrible side effect because it kind of um, you know encourages like dependency on these painkillers because you know you become more sensitive to pain then you need more painkillers to try and deal with that pain so and one of the cycle yeah Yeah. the really bad things like with end of life or hospice care people have been on pain medications for a long time but then once they're in the hospice they take some really really heavy duty drugs um Mm. And they become so sensitive to pain. I think part of it is just fear of death. And, you know, people have this big fear, like, when I die, you know, I just don't want to be in pain. I don't want to feel any pain. Just make sure that I, you know, don't feel any pain. But some people become so sensitive. Like, if you move their bed sheets or their blanket on them, even the feeling of the blanket moving across their skin causes them, like, extreme pain. So they're incredibly sensitive. Yeah. One of the other issues with the opioids um, that I was reading about in one of these articles was uh, it was talking about how um, they. uh, uh, Oh, geez, I just lost my train of thought. What was it? Sorry, it'll come back to me. (laughs) Uh, It's all right. (laughs) If I could jump in, uh, 
the uh, just talking about the the increase in in addiction, I think is a really interesting topic because there's <clears throat> there's this stigma uh, in our culture about addicts. You know, if you're addicted to anything, well, you're just a you're just a junkie. You're just an addict. You know, you have no willpower, no self control, uh, and your your self worth, your societal contribution, you know, goes down in everybody's eyes. Um, but that, uh, <clears throat> I think it's mostly related, uh, in people's minds to illegal substances. And there's not a lot of talk about, um, you know, people who you are around every day, uh, in the professional or other kind of worlds that are addicted to, uh, to opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a quote from this article that I had was looking at just a minute ago, that, uh, there were enough narcotic painkillers being prescribed in the United States uh, in 2010 to medicate every single adult around the clock for a month. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So everybody could be high all the time. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, For um, a month, anyway. For, yeah, for a month. But uh, apparently, <laughs> you know, um, there's enough pain. I think <clears throat> two questions in my mind are, you know, why is there so much pain? And I think there are some no-brainer answers to that one. Um, you know, modern diseases, inflammation, uh, uh, industrial pollution that causes chronic uh, disease and things like that. Um, but also uh, why uh, Big Pharma has pushed and pushed this. And that's also, again, a no-brainer kind of question, I think. You know, it's the profit. Um, they're making billions, billions of dollars off of this industry and it's they they are yeah. the 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 most effective uh most uh quote unquote talented uh drug dealers in the world are these mm-hmm. multi-billion dollar companies yeah oxycontin yeah. i read that it brought in 20 billion dollars for purdue which is a drug company they made 20 billion dollars in 20 years off of <laughs> oxycontin yeah yeah I mean, the sad thing about these um, these pharmaceutical companies is that they prey on vulnerable they prey on vulnerable individuals. Um, but the problem is, is because it's within the confines of the law that they are free to get away with away with it. They're essentially, um, you know, drug dealers uh, in the real sense of the word. But because it's not uh, seen that way by society then um, they are free to reap the benefits of that at the detriment of the, of the people. Um, there's some interesting statistics uh, that I copied down from reading some of the articles. Um, one was that more than 47,000 people died from opioid drugs um, overdoses in 2014. Um, the deaths from opioid drug overdoses have hit an all-time record in the U.S. in 2015, rising 14% in just one year. And that was reported by the CDC. And um, another one is that since 2000, um, the rate of deaths from drug overdoses have increased 137%. And that's including a 200% increase in the rate of, rate of overdose deaths involving opioid painkillers um, so so this this opioid um, industry is is really quite a booming one at the minute and it seems to be increasing um, I guess as people's um, need for pain medication is increasing as well as you just said yeah. Jonathan when you've got the inflammation you've got disease you've got all of these problems that are on the rise in society you're gonna have a, a demand which also mimics that or mirrors that 
Um, and so, yeah, it seems to be, it really is uh, uh, an epidemic. You know? Yeah. Well, one of, the, one of the things, I mean, the, the drugs by their very nature are kind of habit-forming in a lot of ways. There was one article we were looking at called Ushering in a Heroin Nightmare, Big Pharma Exposed for Knowingly Causing Opioid Epidemic. And what they were talking about in this is actually that, um, so when you take uh, one of these prescription opioids, or any opi- opioid, including um, uh, heroin, um, it's, once it's out of your system, you actually start to experience withdrawal symptoms, mm-hmm. which include like body aches, nausea, um, anxiety, um, and like very similar to what somebody coming off heroin would feel as well. And the way that these drugs are prescribed is very strict, and they only allow you to take it every 12 hours. But the problem is that um, the effects actually wear off before that 12-hour mark. So, you know, the person, if it only lasts eight hours, then the person is is, uh, going through these withdrawal symptoms for four hours. All all their pain is going to come back. So suddenly they're suffering even worse. Um, but the, you know, they're very, it's very strict. You can only take it every 12 hours. So a lot of, um, people are actually end up turning to other, um, medications, other painkillers to try and deal with that. And, you know, the availability of that might be, um, restricted in some way. So that's kind of how people end up turning to heroin or like uh, illegal drugs. Um, so the whole point of this article is that actually these opioid drugs are driving an increase in heroin usage. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and once they um, they go into this withdrawal, and they they may go to their doctor and say, you know, this OxyContin is not lasting me twelve hours, so they'll up the strength of the dose, and it right. still won't last them quite twelve hours. And they go through this withdrawal, and then they take their next dose, and they get this big burst of endorphins or feel good chemicals, and that kind of sets them up on a physical level for addiction, and then it still doesn't last them their 12 hours and say they might, you know, use pot or something and they'll test positive for pot and they'll break their pain contract and their doctor will kick them off the the opioid program. And then, you know, what else are they going to do? Maybe they might try heroin because, Mm -hmm. you know, they're already hooked on a heroin like substance. So, you know, what Mm -hmm. other choice do they have at that point? Jeez. But uh, in West Virginia, there was this, you know, big uh, controversy because um, it showed that Big Pharma was kind of colluding with these pain uh, management clinics or pill mills in West Virginia and Mm -hmm. uh, writing all these prescriptions for opioid uh, pain meds. There's this one company called Amerisource Bergen, and they distributed more than 140 million doses of opioid pain meds to West Virginia pharmacies. This was between 2000 and 2012. So that's 140 million doses. I can't even imagine that much. I mean, it's just crazy, crazy. Yeah, in that that context, what's considered a dose? Is that a a bottle or a, a single pill? I'm thinking it's a single pill. I mean, it'd be crazy if it was a prescription for, like, you know, a 30-day supply or something. Yeah. Let's hope it's just the pill. (laughs) I think it is. They're they're saying dose, right? So that's going to be an individual dose, not a a whole prescription. But, uh, Tiff, do you know what? Like, I, I, I hadn't come across this term pill mill before. 
And yeah. it, it sounds like it's basically like a, a pain clinic where the guy just has his prescription pad ready and anybody who comes in and says they're in pain, he writes a prescription for these things. Basically, and then they go to a friendly pharmacy and the pharmacists, you know, they have a role in this too because they see so many people coming in from the same, you know, clinic with the prescription is like a whole bunch of them coming in, getting their prescriptions filled. I mean, they have to think something. I mean, if they yeah. don't, they're probably in on the whole thing. But uh, when sure. this whole thing well, I mean, in West Virginia blew up, I mean, there were, you know, doctors, who, you know, left the country, pharmacists who left the country. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Hmm. Yeah, that does happen quite a bit. <clears throat> in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a story about a pharmacy. They got busted for dealing under the table, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And the uh, the black market uh, demand for these pills is is over the top. Uh, you know, one one bottle, uh, you know, one prescription, like thirty day supply of something seemingly simple. Not even talking like the hard hitters, but you know, like Percocet um, can be worth thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might, get, you know, you might get that depending on what your copay is for what, like fifty bucks, a hundred bucks. And of course, you know. It, you're if you're down and out you might try to sell it uh or again on the other hand like you mentioned people that are in the pain management program they run out too early uh there are plenty of places all over the place for them to go and find somebody to get a a pill from um Mm -hmm. so not only are they probably taking drugs that they shouldn't be taking that may interact badly with the ones that they did take um but they're spending insane amount of money on it uh you know, and it's just fueling the uh, the black market around this substances. Yeah, and people have heard of you know patients who doctor shop. They might have a doctor on this side of town and another doctor on the other side of town, and they think that mm-hmm. they don't know that they're prescribing the same prescription for one patient. But some states do have like databases where they can see you know this patient receives this prescription, so they're supposed to be able to avoid those kind of things. But I don't think it happens a lot of the time. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say if we have any. The, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say if we have any listeners um, who have experience in this area, of course you can uh, you can call anonymously. Uh, there's no need to give your name on the air, but uh, I would be curious to hear from people who uh, either have experience with it them with this themselves or with uh, relatives. Um, one of our chatters. Uh, said that her mother was on Vicodin for many years and started to have hallucinations and was blurring the lines between kind of dreams and reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> I'd be curious, anybody else who has uh, a story like that to share, if you're if you're listening to the show on uh, radio.sot.net, you can uh, click the red speak with the host button and give us a call, but you need a, a microphone for that. So just to put that out there. Yeah. Well, it seems like, you know, People are catching on. I mean, if they didn't know that America has a drug problem by now, <laughs> they should really know. So Congress got into it, and they passed an act called the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. And uh, they're kind of like tooting their own horns because they think that this is going to actually help the whole drug problem. Um, and the act, it says that they'll kind of try and direct addicts into recovery programs instead of jail. I don't think that's going to happen because the justice system or the injustice system makes a lot of money mm-hmm. by putting users in jail instead of giving them treatment. So this act, they want to 
give them treatment instead of sending them to prison. They want to expand the access of naloxone, which is used to treat opioid overdoses. It kind of makes the the uh, physical effects of the opioid non-existent. Um, but this act doesn't really stop doctors from prescribing or over-prescribing opioid meds in the first place. Exactly. So it comes in the back door, but it doesn't really solve the problem well, where it starts, yeah. which is with the prescribing. It's, it's once again the case of like kind of blaming the victim. You know, it's the, the you know, the, they, they don't look at the source of the problem. They just kind of look at, oh, we've got all these people hooked on pills. Let's, uh, let's come up with all kinds of, you know, that just more things that kind of end up inconveniencing or mm. ruining the lives of, of the individuals who are actually victims. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's a real, it's, it's a racket basically, you know, they're, they're making, they're billions of dollars off these pills and, uh, you know, implement these non-solutions to try and, and deal with the, the fallout from it. Yeah. So. And another thing that this act doesn't do, it it doesn't take into account the benefits of medical marijuana for pain. Um mm. in that same article it says that 80% of medical marijuana users give up prescription pills when they start using medical marijuana. And medical marijuana has no side effects, unlike these prescription opioids. Um, So there's another thing, like Mm -hmm. uh, medical marijuana or marijuana is still classified as a Schedule One drug, and that means that it's the most dangerous and it has no medical uses, which is not true because there's been tons and tons of studies showing the medical uses of medical marijuana. So I think that Big Pharma does not want medical marijuana use to become so widespread because they're going to lose a lot of their profits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the thing thing with medical marijuana is that it's fairly difficult to... um, Have I... uh, Am I still on? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, right, sorry. No, it went quiet. I thought I'd lost my connection there. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, I think the, the one, maybe one of the reasons why they aren't so fond of medical marijuana is because it's uh, fairly difficult to control um, in the sense of developing a, a patent or patent for it. And then you, you'd need all these different... Um, ...would be very difficult... And I don't think you'd be able to make that much money off it as well. Um, but it is fairly interesting to see how um, the the states that have adopted the use of medical marijuana for treating chronic chronic pain, um, the use of, of opioid pain medications have dramatically fell. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there was one study that it it, it studied seventeen states that used uh, medical cannabis. Um, and it found that the use of prescription drugs, um, there was another one which saw, I think it saw a 24.8% lower annual, an, annual, annual, sorry, I've lost my words, annual opioid overdose rate. So um, the amount of people who were overdosing from these prescription drugs also fell dramatically. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of silly that the... Um, that the government aren't, aren't 
really paying any attention to these studies and possibly adopting, you know, the use of medical marijuana instead of prescribing, you know, uh, or allowing the prescription of all of these synthetic opioid drugs that cause mm-hmm. clearly cause people so much pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elliot, you did drop out for a quick second. What was that statistic with the 17 states again? Oh, sorry about that, guys. Um, no it, there was a study, um, it studied 17 states in the U.S. Uh, there were ones that had adopted a medical cannabis law um, in 2013, and it basically found that um, the use of prescription drugs um, fell significantly. Okay. Um, yeah, that was it. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, you know, the, the government is kind of in on the racket here. So as, you know, the, the billions that the, the pharmaceutical companies are getting are, you know, the, the government is getting, you know, their share of that, I'm sure. And uh, so it, it's not surprising that when something else comes along that uh, that could kind of, you know, get people off the really addictive and terrible stuff and, and using something that's, uh, you know, controversial, but nonetheless, um, obviously having a beneficial effect that they wouldn't be interested, you know? So it's not surprising that, you know, and, and the, the thing is like the, the, the types of, of marijuana that the, um, in, in some cases, the types of marijuana that they're using for pain mitigation is not the kind that, you know, your, you know, hippie stoner is like smoking in a bong in his basement, right? It's kind of like <laughs> they've, they've, you know, lowered the amount of the THC, which is the stuff that gets you high. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but it keeps all the, the kind of pain relieving properties, so I mean that's not always the case. I mean sometimes it's just kind of straight up marijuana, but um, but uh, you know they're they're researching this and kind of looking into it. So it's not necessarily that people are just getting stoned. Mm-hmm. There's kind of uh, you know components in marijuana that actually um, just are kind of pain fighting uh, elements in and of themselves. Yeah, yeah. I and think I- context is really important too. I mean you know obviously we're not advocating that everybody go out and smoke pot, um, and there are. No there are detrimental effects to long-term chronic use of marijuana. However, uh, not, trying to not do the black and white thing, um, if you're up against taking Oxycontins or like morphine or something, mm-hmm. then uh, marijuana would be much more beneficial in that scenario. You know, yeah. you're, you're not going to overdose. Um, there's, it's, it's essentially harmless uh, in the short term. And if it works for pain relief, I mean, people, you know, this should be considered uh as an, as a viable alternative, but of course, you know, there's a, there's a stigma. And as Elliot mentioned, you know, it would cut into the profits of the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so I think that's, it's kind of obvious why it's, why it's not, uh, I guess. Yeah, it is, I think we've, uh, but, sorry, but, I was just going to say, I think, I think we should uh, kind of say that we don't really condone its use. Um, especially if you're in a place where it is not legal, um, yeah. we would never kind of, uh, you know, recommend people engage in any kind of illegal activity. So, right. you know, and at the same, you- at the same time, you know, I mentioned you know people want like a magic pill that could be also some magical substance that'll just take all their pain away. But there are many things that you can try, not just uh, a painkiller pill or not just marijuana that you can do to alleviate your pain. And I think that. I mean, not everybody is going to be curious enough or have, you know, the gumption and the curiosity to actually go out and try other things along with medical marijuana or with 
a pain medication because I think that seriously a lot of people if they had a choice would rather have absolutely no pain where they didn't have to take anything but you yeah. know if you find yourself in a situation where you had an accident or something happened to you and you're in pain you hope that you can only you know only have to take something for a brief amount of time and then eventually your pain will go away that's why it's important to try other things in tandem with like if you are you know in a place where you don't have legal medical marijuana and you have to take an opioid for a time every now and then just you know so you don't suffer needlessly but there are other things that you can try which we'll get into that but yeah there are other options yeah and again with the context thing i mean you know there's there's obviously a difference between you know the pain experienced by a burn victim Uh or a cancer patient uh than somebody who has uh you know say torn their acl uh or has a sore ankle Mm -hmm. you know or something like that um there's these uh various levels of pain uh and i think where it falls down is that people get you know like we've been talking about they get hooked on the on the the lower level opioids uh, and then move to the uh the heavier ones because over time they increase your sensitivity to pain um and just like i know it's a fictional tv show but if anybody has ever seen the show house um Mm. one of the main themes of that show is the doctor's addiction to vicodin and uh over the course of the series it becomes more and more addictive to him uh to the point where it's like highly destructive in his life and so i think that's a a potent example um and i think you know it's it it is a tv show but that does happen in a lot of people's lives uh where um they're not given any alternative uh they're encouraged uh to use painkillers because they're legal they're socially acceptable um and then they just get more and more addicted over time yeah and they feel like they have no other options i mean i don't know about any of you but i've never had chronic pain i can only imagine like the amount of energy and focus you have to go through just to make it through the day and you know you have this pain you know that's just with you 24 hours a day you can't sleep that's all you think about like all the emotional energy that you have to deal with just to make it through the day i'm sure it's like really debilitating and i can understand how people just lose hope and they'll just try the first thing that they can get their hands on just to get some Mm -hmm. kind of relief and to be able to sleep um, and they might have been subjected to surgeries. They thought the surgery was going to work, and the surgery didn't work. It probably just made things worse. So, yeah, it's a pretty hard situation to be in. And, you know, I don't want to pass judgment on anybody that has chronic pain because I'm sure it's just a horrible way to live. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, aside from the emotional effects of, of chronic pain and how, how difficult that must be on a, on a sort of emotional and psychological level to, to deal with day to day, um, it does actually have physiological effects as well. Um, there was one article that we read for the show. Um, it was citing a study that actually showed that people with chronic back aches have brains as much as 11% smaller as those as non-sufferers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that was a study in 2004. So I'm not quite sure how to interpret that because <laughs> I'm wondering it it 
you know, it could possibly go the other way, you know. Um, is it the cause of the backache? Is there some underlying physiological issues that has, have caused the backache and that the, um, that the brain was actually, um, caused by the, the, the underlying issue rather than the chronic pain, the experience of mm. chronic pain itself? If that makes any sense. Yeah, well, and I think it's about where people go for solutions to. Tiff, you mentioned surgery, and that's a huge problem. Um, uh, I, I've seen uh, quite a few times and, and read about examples of people who say have a uh, <clears throat> an issue with a disc in their back, and they'll go in for surgery and get it fused, you know, or get some mm. kind of cage, uh, you know, resulting from a back injury. Um, they'll, they'll get like an actual cage put around that part of the spine. <clears throat> and uh, when in a lot of those cases, obviously not 100%, but a lot of those cases, uh, that could be fixed by correcting diet to reduce inflammation and then going to a chiropractor. Right. Um, mm. I had, I, I've not had like severe chronic pain ever, but I've, I had a low level uh, chronic joint pain for quite a while, for maybe like 10 years. And uh, oh. <clears throat> once I started going to the chiropractor, it was, it was done. Mm-hmm. It was fixed mm-hmm. and it was just because I wasn't addressing it correctly, it was a structural problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in another lifetime, I might have gone in and had a surgery, and then it, it would have gotten even worse, you know. Mm. Yeah, but back to the 11% smaller brains and people with chronic pain, I was just thinking, like, uh, if you're in pain, there's only so much you can do. You might spend a lot of time, you know, just resting, lying down, you can't engage in a lot of activities. You're grumpy. You're irritable. Uh, you don't really have the mental energy to, I don't know, maybe read or engage in intellectual pursuits or things that would mm-hmm. strengthen or maybe grow your brain or grow the connections between your neurons. So that kind of makes sense that maybe their brains would be smaller or at least function in a different way than a mm-hmm. person who does not have chronic pain. Yeah, I was thinking along similar lines that like kind of like so much of your attention would be kind of be mm-hmm. focused on the pain. Yeah. Um, so you just, you, you, you know, it's like parts of your brain, you don't use it, you lose it. Right. So yeah. um, it, it kind of makes sense from that perspective. You can say uh, from my experience that I just cited, when I, when I was experiencing that, it is, um, it's pretty much the only thing you think about. Yes. On a daily basis, and so it is. It's hard to concentrate in other activities that it might cause consumes you. Like, yeah, you know, like playing music or, or drawing, or even just going out into nature and walking around. You're always thinking about this pain, and it, it's uh, it's definitely a distraction. And it seems like the longer it goes on, uh, there's a saying that neurons that fire together wire together. Like even more parts of your brain are devoted to pain signals versus, you know, other types of, you know, brain functions like visual processing. Um, One of our forum members posted something from how your brain can heal itself. And they mentioned Mm -hmm. that. Um, He said that chronic pain is like brain plasticity gone haywire or gone wild like all these neurons are firing devoted towards this whole pain relief or pain signals where in a person with not who doesn't have chronic pain those uh 
other parts of the brain are focused on other things like visual processing or something else, but instead they're all devoted to controlling your pain and allowing you to function with this pain. So I guess um, one of the ways um, when we get into like ways to relieve pain, one of the ways to relieve this pain is to actually focus on your brain, try to change the way your brain functions, not necessarily something that you have to do physically in order to relieve your pain. Yeah, uh, slight related, but not necessarily about the brain focusing, but let's come back to that. I was just going to say, too, um, uh, sitting is a huge problem, mm-hmm. uh, especially for people who have that, uh, you know, integrated into their job where they sit for many hours at a time. Um, that was an experience I had where um, I had this, I had years ago, and this is totally stupid, but I had actually, I think I broke my knee. Um, I, I'm not oh. certain because I never went to the doctor for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it got better after a while, but then like six to seven years later, it started to ache really bad and it would ache all the time. And I sit, or I did sit at a computer, um, you know, many hours a day. Uh, and when I switched, uh, to using a standing desk and not sitting as much and starting to move around a little bit more than it went away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, uh, for a lot of people who are in that, in, in a profession where they might sit for many hours at a time. Um, mm-hmm. that can be a, a big exacerbator of the condition. Yeah, because yeah. sitting in places more... talks about that, too. Yeah, more stresses on your spinal column when you sit versus when you're standing up where you have the support of your legs and your core when you're standing up, but when you're sitting, you don't have that support, so there's a lot of pressure on your back and your spine. There's a lot of information out there about how kind of the human body was not designed to sit as much as we do in our kind of modern society. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it kind of makes sense that uh, that over-sitting, <laughs> if you can call it that, would uh, would maybe not be the best for, for just from a physiological perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before, uh, Jonathan, um, nutrition. Mm-hmm. And we have to keep in mind that pain is a signal that something is wrong. It's not a diagnosis within itself. It's just something that's telling you, hey, something needs to change and maybe the pain will go away. So um, I noticed that when I went gluten-free, stopped eating grains, cut out sugars, I stopped getting headaches and I stopped having mm-hmm. menstrual cramps every month. Mm-hmm. And the menstrual cramps were just horrible and they would be accompanied mm-hmm. by nausea and retching when I first started having menstruation. But once I cut out gluten and grains, all of that went away. And the only reason I get a headache now is if I accidentally eat something that I don't, that doesn't agree with me. But um, hmm. yeah, a, a gluten diet can cause inflammation and pain is just another, uh, it's just a part of being inflamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, ninety percent of the time, right? That pain is a is a result of some kind of inflammation. Again, unless there's a um, uh, another acute uh, stressor of some kind, but yeah. I would say most of the time it, it results from some kind of inflammation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and diet's definitely a very good way to kind of deal with that. You know, there's that. There's definitely you know we we obviously on here advocate a a paleo diet, if not keto ketogenic paleo. 
Um, and one of the things that you get on a diet like that is, um, a lot of, uh, omega-3 fats, which have a natural anti-inflammatory property to them. So that's, you know, just, just by changing diet alone, um, to something more paleocentric, you're, you're going to, um, naturally be getting a lot of compounds. Um, vitamin D is another one. Um, but they, these natural compounds that, that have anti-inflammatory properties. So just that in and of itself, aside from cutting out the foods that are inflammatory by their nature, um, is going to give you some improvement. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Tiff, you had mentioned the, the brain angle <clears throat> and, you know, approaching pain from a mental perspective. And, uh, we have this clip, uh, that we were talking about. Do you think it's a good time to go to that? And do you want to like introduce that a little bit? Sure. It's a clip from a man named John Cabot Zinn. I got this clip off of YouTube, but he helps people deal with chronic pain through meditative exercises and leaning into the pain and not fighting against the pain, coming to know the pain and, um, doing body scans to kind of not run away from it. Because if you're fighting against it, if you're saying bad things against your body, you have to remember that you're, you're, all your cells have consciousness and you want to, all your cells to work together as a team. You don't want to declare a war on any part of your body. So I'll let him go into it. So this is a clip on how to deal with chronic pain. People with chronic pain conditions who seek medical treatment thinking of their body as being pretty much like an automobile and that all the doctor needs to do is find out why they are in pain and then make it go away by cutting the right nerve or giving them some magic pills or injections are usually in for a rude awakening. Things are rarely that simple with chronic pain. In the new paradigm, pain is not just a body problem, it is a whole systems problem. Sensory impulses originating both at the surface of your body and internally are transmitted via nerve fibers to the brain where these messages are registered and interpreted as pain. This has to happen before they are considered painful by the organism. But there are many well-known pathways within the brain and the central nervous system by which higher cognitive and emotional functions can modify the perception of pain. Studies we conducted over the years showed that there is a dramatic reduction in the average level of pain during the eight-week training period in MBSR, as measured by a pain questionnaire called the McGill-Melzack Pain Rating Index. This is a reproducible finding. We see it in every class year after year. In one study, 72% of the patients with chronic pain conditions achieved at least a 33% reduction on the pain rating index, while 61% of the pain patients achieved at least a 50% reduction. This means that the majority of people who came with pain experienced clinically significant reductions in their pain levels over the eight weeks they were practicing the meditation at home and attending weekly classes at the hospital. Some people have difficulty understanding why we emphasize that they try to enter into their pain when they simply hate it and just want it to go away. Their feeling is, why shouldn't I ignore it or distract myself from it and grit my teeth and just endure it when it's too great? One reason is that there may be times when ignoring it or distracting yourself doesn't work. At such times, it's very helpful to have other tricks up your sleeve besides just trying to endure it or depending on drugs to ease it. 
Several laboratory experiments with acute pain have shown that tuning into sensations is a more effective way of reducing the level of pain experienced when the pain is intense and prolonged than is distracting yourself. So where do you begin? The body scan is by far the technique that works the best at the beginning for people with chronic pain, especially if sitting still or moving are difficult. You can do it lying on your back or in any other convenient outstretched position. Move slowly, scanning through your entire body. As you move through a problem region, perhaps one in which the sensations of discomfort and pain are quite intense, see if you can treat it like any other part of your body that you come to focus on, in other words, gently breathing into and out from that region, carefully observing the sensations, allowing yourself to feel them and open up to them, and letting your whole body relax and soften each time you breathe out. When it comes time to let go of that region and move on, and you can decide when that moment is, let go of it completely. If it helps, try saying goodbye in your mind silently on an outbreath, and see if you can flow in that moment into calmness and stillness. And even if the pain doesn't change at all or becomes more intense, just move on to the next region and direct your full attention to it. If the painful sensations in a particular region do change in some way, see if you can note precisely what the qualities of that change are. Let them register fully in your awareness and keep going with the body scan. It is not helpful to expect pain to disappear, but you may find that it changes in intensity, getting momentarily stronger or weaker, or that the sensations change, say, from sharp to dull, or to tingling or burning or throbbing. It can also be helpful to be aware of any thoughts and emotional reactions that you may be having about either your pain, your body, the meditation, or anything else. Just keep up the watching and letting go, watching and letting go, breath by breath, moment by moment. As best you can manage it, anything you observe about your pain or about your thoughts and feelings is to be noted non-judgmentally as you maintain your focus in the body scan. In the stress reduction clinic, we do this every day for weeks. It can be boring, sometimes even exasperating, but that's okay. Boredom and exasperation can also be seen as thoughts and feelings and let go of. Also, do not be overly thrilled with success or overly depressed by lack of so-called progress as you go along. Every day will be different. In fact, every moment will be different. So don't jump to conclusions after one or two sessions. The work of growth and healing takes time. Mindfulness involves a determined effort to observe and open to your physical discomfort and your agitated emotions moment by moment. Remember, you are trying to find out about your pain, to learn from it, to know it better, not to stop it or get rid of it or escape from it. If you can assume this attitude and be calmly with your pain, looking at it in this way for even one breath or even half a breath, that is a step in the right direction. From there you might be able to expand it and remain calm and open while facing the pain for maybe two or three breaths or even longer. In the clinic, we like to use the expression putting out the welcome mat to describe how we work with pain during meditation. 
Since it's already present in a particular moment, we do what we can to be receptive and accepting of it. We try to relate to it in as neutral a way as possible, observing it non-judgmentally, feeling what it actually feels like in detail, riding the waves of the breath, the waves of sensation. We also ask ourselves the question, how bad is it right now, in this very moment? If you practice doing this, you will probably find that most of the time, even when you are feeling terrible, when you go right into the sensations and ask, in this moment, is it tolerable? Is it okay? The chances are you will find out that it is. The difficulty is that the next moment is coming, and the next, and you know they are all going to be filled with more pain. The solution? Try taking each moment as it comes. Try to be 100% in the present in one moment, then do the same for the next, right through the 45-minute practice period if necessary, or until the intensity subsides, at which point you can go back to the body scan. In working with pain, there's another very important thing you can do as well as observing the bare sensations themselves. That is to be aware of any thoughts or feelings you're having about the sensations. Statements such as, this is killing me, I can't stand it any longer, how long will this go on, my whole life is a mess, there's no hope for me, I'll never master this pain, may all move through your mind at one time or another. You may find such thoughts coming and going constantly, none of them are the pain itself. Can you be aware of this as you practice? It is a key realization. Not only are these thoughts not the pain itself, they're not you either, nor, in all likelihood, are they particularly true or accurate. They are just the understandable reactions of your own mind when it is not ready to accept the pain and wants things to be different from the way they are, in other words, pain-free. When you see and feel the sensations you are experiencing as sensations, pure and simple, you may see that these thoughts about the sensations are useless to you at that moment, and that they can actually make things worse than they need to be. Then, in letting go of them, you come to accept the sensations simply because they are already here anyway. Why not just accept them for now? However, you cannot reliably let go into accepting the sensations until you realize that it is your thinking that is labeling the sensations as bad. It is your thinking that doesn't want to accept them now or ever because it doesn't like them and just wants them to go away. But notice, now it is not you that won't accept the sensations, it's just your thinking. And you already know, because you've seen it for yourself firsthand, that your thoughts are not you. If you suffer from a chronic pain condition, there will be times when you will feel like quitting, especially if you don't see quick results in terms of pain reduction. But in doing this work, you must also remember that it involves patience and gentleness and loving-kindness toward yourself and even toward your pain. It means working at your limits, but gently, not trying too hard, not exhausting yourself, not pushing too hard to break through. The breakthroughs will come by themselves in their own good time if you put in the energy in the spirit of self-discovery. 
Mindfulness does not bulldoze through resistance. You have to work gently at the edges, a little here and a little there, keeping your vision alive in your heart, particularly during the times of greatest pain and difficulty. So that was John Cabot Zinn. I like this clip. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. interesting points. Because uh, you know he's drawing kind of a, a parallel between the um, the mind and pain, mm-hmm. and I think I thought it was interesting in in um, conjunction with another um, article we were looking at. <clears throat> excuse me for uh, this uh, this show called "Controlling Chronic Back Pain Without Surgery," and it's a, a Dr. Mercola article, and he's um, interviewing a guy named Dr. Hanscom who's, uh, I believe he's a back specialist of, of some kind who doesn't, uh, doesn't recommend surgery. And his approach is kind of similar. Like he really um, looks into kind of the emotional connection to, uh, to pain, uh, particularly chronic pain. And I thought he said something really interesting. Uh, he said that using MRI brain imaging, they showed that um, while people had acute back pain, um, it activated the pain center in their brain, which is what you would expect. But then when they were looking at people who had chronic pain of like 10 years experience of pain, um, that it, it wasn't actually centered in, the, in the, the pain center anymore. It was actually in the emotional center of the brain. So they did an experiment where they um, took people who had acute pain and started rescanning them every three months. And they found that within 12 months, the pain had, if, if the pain still persisted, it had mitigated to the pain, um, from the pain center to the emotional center. So it's kind of interesting in that respect because it's kind of like, well, I guess you're when you're you're experiencing chronic pain, it's kind of no longer an acute thing. So it's not like um, the body is is sending this message that there's um, pain in this one place because it's it's experiencing that there. It's it's moved to the emotional part. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of make, makes you question: Is the pain even really there anymore, or is it just kind of like an emotional reaction? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I found that to be really interesting. And actually, one other thing, the um, on the forum right now, there's actually some talk about a book called uh, The Divided Mind, and it's by um, an author. His last name is Sorno. I don't remember his first name. John, I think. Um, and his uh, approach is actually t- talking about the psychosomatic connection of pain. And what he actually says is that pain is often a, um, a distraction from dealing with some sort of emotional issue. And that um, your your pain is kind of your body's um, way of avoiding that kind of emotional um, dealing with those emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might not be a universal condition, but it's it's kind of like uh, you know, I don't think anybody who's broken their arm necessarily is is suffering from that. Um, but that in these kind of chronic pain situations, it might actually be the body's way of 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 kind of avoiding um, an emotional response that they're actually afraid of. Yeah. So. Anyway, I thought those both kind of tied in with that clip. Yeah, I've actually seen that with a patient. I don't know what her emotional issues were because she never really got to the bottom of them before she died, but she just needed more and more and more pain medication. Like, no matter how much she was given, it was never enough for her. And she was Mm -hmm. just very emotionally distraught, like, all of the time. So... We all knew that there was something more than just the physical pain going on. But I like the way that in the clip and also in that Mercola interview with Dr. Hascom, where he said that it's important and, 
you know, he had his patients write down like all of their mm-hmm. negative emotions and not judge what they were saying, just write it all down, get it all out. And uh, also in that clip where he said that you are not your thoughts and your thoughts are not your mm-hmm. pain, but your thoughts can sometimes exacerbate what's going on with you and make your pain worse. So it's really important to kind of tackle that emotional aspect of your chronic pain in order to actually be able to move through the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it requires, <clears throat> you know, questioning some of your sacred cows. Like I think most people would think of pain as being a purely mechanical mm-hmm. phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which we see that, you know, it's not 100% of the time. Sometimes it is, uh, but sometimes it can actually be conquered by doing these exercises. Yeah, I think it's it's particularly difficult when uh, somebody has uh, had a very um, literal cause for their pain. So they had an accident or something like that, and, the, and, and as a result, they have pain. And they're kind of like, well, no, obviously it's not an emotional thing. I, I had this accident, so that's that's why I have this pain. Mm-hmm. But I think when, you know enough time has passed that you know the physical aspect of it should have healed that maybe that's when you have to kind of start looking into more more possible causes of it and that maybe even if it wasn't caused by an emotional issue in the beginning that mm-hmm. maybe it um it, it's being exacerbated by something yeah so yeah that's yeah. the reason it's sticking around because of some kind of emotional issue yeah 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 and that's the, the well, good thing about meditation is because it lowers your, your levels of cortisol, gets you out of that fight or flight mode, um, mm-hmm. and it just de-stresses you. So it, it gets you to a place where you're able to actually work on your emotions. I don't know. I mean, it probably could. I mean, there's been lots of studies where they've, you know, put patients in, groups where they did medication and actually felt pain relief but is it so much that it's working on the body on a physical level or it just de-stresses you so much that you're able to better cope where the pain isn't such i don't know is not so consuming that it just takes up all of your thoughts i'm trying to figure Mm, out maybe what the mechanism is i kind of think of it like um Medi- uh, meditation kind of um, it, it kind of puts you in a place where you are separate from that constant stream of thoughts mm-hmm. and I think that the more you meditate the kind of the more you become aware even in your day to day life that, that you are not your thoughts yeah. and um, I think that what you know the, the point he was making in, in the, the clip there um, seemed to be that a lot of times it's not the pain itself that is really kind of driving you crazy and stuff it's your thoughts about the pain Mm-hmm. The thoughts like, I can't stand this. When is this going to go away? I need some kind of relief. That That's actually what people tend to be reacting to. So I think by meditating, by meditating, you're kind of, and, and putting that separation between you and your thoughts, maybe those thoughts don't suddenly become so all-consuming. Yeah. They, don't, um, they don't really kind of wrap you up so you're completely identified with the pain mm-hmm. or identified with the thoughts about the pain. You're you're able to kind of separate yourself a little bit more. That's that's my kind of theory on it, anyway. That's a good theory. <laughs> mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about some uh, natural alternatives uh, aside from meditation. Um, <clears throat> uh, DMSO and sulfur compounds, I think, are one 
uh, interesting area um, that I, I've actually had quite a bit of success with. Um, I uh, earlier this summer blew out my Achilles tendon from being an idiot and Ooh. taking a, a 20 mile bike ride when I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> so don't do that. Um, but uh, it, it got super swollen up. Uh, it was really painful. And uh, I was taking um, uh, MSM, uh, methyl sulfonylmethane, <clears throat> and uh, also putting DMSO on the tendon. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the, <clears throat> the inflammation went down. Uh, really quickly, like within about a week. Um, but I noticed that, uh, the MSM in particular, uh, the DMSO helped, uh, with the inflammation itself. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure with some of the pain as well, but the MSM taking that internally, um, was, was really quite a mind blower, um, mm-hmm. at how well it worked. Um, so I would recommend if you have, uh, you know, I guess for chronic or acute pain, if you have any kind of pain going on, try, try that. You need to give it a few days to kind of kick in and get into your system, but it really helps. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to point out, too. Like, don't Mm -hmm. be impatient. You have to try things more than once to see if they're going to work for you. But, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of luck with the MSO. Although DMSO works actually fairly quickly. Yeah. 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 It's really good for, um, particularly for, like, joint pain and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. MSM as well. Um, I know a lot of people have found a lot of success taking taking MSM regularly with uh, things like osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis um, or injuries, like you were saying, Jonathan. Um, but yeah, DMSO topically, right on top of the the place that that's hurting, is you gets you know so much good feedback. Yeah, you might want to yep. use one of the DMSO creams. It's not mm-hmm. full one hundred percent DMSO. It might be like seventy percent. And if, you know, depending on how sensitive your skin is, you might want to dilute it even more than that. So you don't have any kind of, you know, uh, skin irritation from putting the DMSO on. Yeah, it's a quick important note, I think, about DMSO is it's not a harmless uh, compound. You can put too much on you and, and burn your skin. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's a solvent. Uh, and you also want to make sure that the area that you apply it to is really clean. Like you want to clean it right before you put it on um, because it can carry um, anything uh, into your bloodstream uh, yeah. pretty much direct, directly. Uh, so you got to make sure that you clean the area really well. Um, but yeah, I use the uh, DMSO gel um, that I just got from a, from a, you know, health food store. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I did uh, go a little overboard with it once and, and burned my skin. And I was like, okay, well, that was too much. So you want to start with <laughs> small amounts. Yeah. Um, and you will stink. Yeah. Uh, that That is not a myth. <laughs> 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 smell like uh, it, it takes a minute. It's not, it won't happen on the first day, but if you're using it over time for like, you know, a week or so, uh, you start to kind of exude uh, a gross smell. Some people call it garlic. I um, call it I oysters. It was, yeah, it was uh, kind of like sour, sour like milk. Rotting cabbage kind of, yeah, sour milk, yeah. yeah. I don't but think the, it's so that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I like the taste of oysters, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I think um, it's, when, from what I understand anyway, using it topically, you don't usually get that quite as badly as if you're taking it internally. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does happen, but I, I don't think it's quite as strong. I did get it, uh, and I was just putting small amounts, like on my ankle. So oh, even from okay. that, even 
even from that access point, yeah, it was still it was still causing me to smell. I had to sleep on the couch for a few days. <laughs> <laughs> so that that is something, and you know, there's something to take into consideration too. Especially if you work like I work from home, so it's not a huge problem for me. But if you work in an area where you need to like interface with people all the time, you might want to like pick a yeah. weekend, you know. Or <laughs> try that yeah uh, or just do it anyway in. how often is somebody yeah. gonna say hey dude you stink <laughs> yeah yeah well, well i mean that's the thing right if you're choosing between like really bad pain versus like maybe smelling a little bit I, often the the choice is gonna be pretty obvious and like you can yeah and the funny thing is that apparently like you can't actually smell it if you're the one using it and but everybody else can so you'll be fine. It's true. It's just everybody yep. else who suffers for you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> You're offloading your suffering. Exactly. <laughs> but in lieu of DMSO, um, I, I was I would say MSM works really well. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. a fire extinguisher for inflammation. It's incredible. Yeah, it's um, pretty great. And now there are some other herbal uh, remedies, and I'm I'm blanking a little bit off the top of my head. I, Doug, I was going to ask from when you worked in that um, that health food store, uh, did you notice anything that was kind of like uh, used more or less by, by the majority yeah. of people? The component you find in turmeric um, called curcumin is, I'd say, by far the most popular for, uh, for inflammatory issues. It's a pretty strong anti-inflammatory. Um, I do recommend people use an extract of it instead of using just the herb itself. I mean, you can use the herb itself. There's nothing wrong with that. And like, you know, just eating a lot of turmeric. Um, but it's the, the human digestive system is not very efficient at kind of extracting the curcumin. Um, so if you do something like uh, an extract, um, it's already been kind of taken out. Um, so you get kind of a, a, just a potent dose of that curcumin. You can do a couple of things like uh, combining it with fat and uh, using black pepper as well makes it more kind of, extractable but um i think i think using an actual medicinal extract tends to be a a better way to go boswellia is another really good one um otherwise known as frankincense uh that's another good anti-inflammatory um there's tons of them though i mean have you had, devil's claw is really good have you had a good experience with arnica i've never used it before but people seem to swear mm-hmm. by it yeah yeah and you can do arnica in two uh, uh different forms there's arnica oil, which is just like the the plant or the flower extract, um, and people people will kind of apply that topically. But then there's also uh, homeopathic arnica, which um, can be quite um, effective as well, and that can be taken internally or it can be done as a cream or something like that in a topical way. There's a lot of blends out there too. I know there was a really popular one for a while there called Tromiel. It's not available in North America anymore. It's available in Europe, but that's uh, arnica, um, homeopathic arnica, in, in conjunction with other homeopathics, mm. and that was extremely popular. A lot of people found that that was really good, either for just joint pain or for some kind of acute issue or whatever the case may be. Have you tried also, ma- looking- maca? I've never or tried maca. maca. Yeah, I, ha- I have. Um, maca in and of itself isn't really a painkiller. Mm. Um, maca is actually more of a, it, it really it feeds the endocrine system. Uh, so it's basically like a hormone uh, regulator. Uh, so if the root cause of your pain, so this is more often going along the lines of like uh, menstrual cramps or something along those lines when it's kind of like a hormonal mm-hmm. um, issue. 
uh, maca can be really helpful because it will um, you know balance that that hormonal picture so something you know it comes something is out of balance in the in the hormone picture um, that's causing uh, menstrual cramping um, or headaches even actually uh, a lot of times uh, hormones can actually be um, uh, like a disbalance in hormones can actually be behind migraine headaches um, or there's other things too that might be causing pain and and maca can be helpful in those situations mm-hmm. um, there might be some slight anti-inflammatory property to it on just on top of that but I think uh, Maca wouldn't be my first choice if it was like, you know, you're trying to treat an injury or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, it would be, it, it's more like kind of dealing with the, the, uh, the hormone picture. Yeah. I think too, no, none of these, uh, like herbal cures will, um, knock pain out in that instant. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, 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 it, uh, unfortunately, and I think part of the reason for the opioid epidemic is that, Nothing is quite as effective in the short term as these pharmaceutical mm. uh, painkillers. Um, mm-hmm. They they are really effective in the short term, but you know as we've shown uh, in the long term, their addictive properties uh, and their the potential to increase your sensitivity to pain is the um, the downside. Uh, you're mm-hmm. you know you're re- rewiring your brain. So if you're sincere about not using opioids, um, then there are these methods, but they need to be done. Um, kind of, uh, with a lot of intent, um, you know, and with focus and with some patience. So I think a combination Mm -hmm. of things like using sulfur compounds combined with, you know, some meditative practice and the other things we've mentioned, um, uh, you know, cat's claws, another one, cohosh, um, stuff Mm -hmm. like that, that you can, you can use in combination with each other. They don't, uh, have interactions, Mm -hmm. um, that you can manage pain in that way without becoming, addicted and then throwing your entire life out of whack yeah it's i sorry it's it's actually devil's claw i think you're thinking of Jonathan. oh devil's claw okay yeah sorry. cat's cat's claw is more used as an antiviral okay right on yeah my bad devil's claw yeah no worries yeah there's another one actually yeah. white willow bark um which is uh uh one that i thought i should mention because it's often used for like headaches it's actually uh white willow bark is where um uh, what's it called? Aspirin actually comes mm-hmm. from. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you kind of take, can take white willow bark because it's kind of the whole plant compound and it doesn't have all the side effects associated with it that you see from aspirin, like uh, digestive upset or, um, actually wearing away at your digestive tract. Mm-hmm. So white willow bark can be good. I know a lot of people who will take that when they've got a headache and they tend to find it fairly effective. I was looking at this article, one of the ones that we looked at for the show, the uh, natural approaches to uh, cramps and PMS. Um, mm. And they mentioned uh, cramp, bark, and black haw, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess sound phonetically similar to devil's claw. I don't know if they're similar, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, cohosh, red raspberry, dong kwai, uh, reishi, uh, valerian root. I've, I've never really had any success with valerian with actual pain relief yeah. uh, that's more for like anti-stress kind of thing um it's it, a lot of people a lot of people just get knocked out on it it just like yeah like puts you to sleep so it, i mean i guess if you're doing do it before bedtime to try and deal with the pain if, you, if you're trying to sleep it's probably a good thing but yeah i don't know i don't know a lot of people who are kind of taking valerian and then trying to go about their day no yeah no <laughs> it is really effective sleep aid though so you wouldn't want to take mm-hmm. it in the morning for sure um yeah. They also mentioned uh, kratom or kratom. Kratom. I'm not entirely sure how it's pronounced, but uh, 
that is a uh, uh, an herb from Southeast Asia, and that is something I'm I've never taken it, but I'm vaguely familiar with the uh, the effects just from having read. Uh, it is quite powerful, but it also has withdrawal symptoms, which is a downside mm. to, to Kratom. Um, there are people that have become addicted to that because it is quite similar to the effect of oh. opioid. Um, That's there are certain cases. No, I was just yeah, going to say I've never come across that one before. Yeah, it's, it is quite interesting. Uh, it's actually illegal in some states in the United States, uh, so mm. that needs to be taken into account. Um, but it is also legal in other states. Um but it's uh, I, I've I'm familiar with some stories where people have used it to actually get off of opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the problem is that it is addictive in and of itself. Um, mm. So I, I, just because it's out there and it's something that people might come across, I would put out that word of caution uh, to try other things um, before you try kratom for for pain relief because it's it has those negative downsides. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and if you don't want to actually put anything in your mouth, you can, you know, if you have like some niggling back pain, you could try using an inversion table. It kind of mm-hmm. uh, gives you a nice stretch on your back, kind of uh, moves out the spine a little bit, takes some of the pressure off of your spine. So if you do sit a lot and you can take short breaks, you might want to take a break and use an, an inversion table. Um, also, I find uh, Epsom salt or magnesium salt baths really good for relaxing sore muscles. Uh, I use that once when I had a little accident, fell out of a window. I felt like I pulled every huh. muscle in my body. <laughs> and the first thing I did was take a, a magnesium bath. I mean, I don't, it didn't, I don't know if it like helped me right away with just the muscle spasms. But it did like calm me down because it was kind of a shock <laughs> to fall at that yeah, distance. <laughs> so I did that and it helped, you know. Um, people also have tried acupuncture to uh, work on their, their pain. I've never actually tried it myself, but uh, people say good things about it. Yeah, it can be very helpful in some situations for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's cupping too, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, my girlfriend tried it recently for some shoulder pain that she was having as a result of uh, a sports uh, injury, and uh, it didn't uh, it didn't knock it out. It like it helped a little bit, kind of enough to be able to deal with it, and then uh, go to the chiropractor and have some more things done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm not aware personally of any like dramatic success stories with cupping. I don't know if no. you guys have heard of any. I have some. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, it makes I you mean, look like you got the crack. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you get. with perfectly round bruises yeah <laughs> well one of our uh, commenters on the on the chat here actually just mentioned exercise like light exercise mm-hmm. and that's definitely sure. something that can be very helpful um you know just going for a light walk or something uh yoga tai chi um you know just stretching doing kind of proper stretching um mm-hmm. all those things can be very helpful for um for doing it for pain management as well. Yeah, and along with Tai Chi and yoga and Qigong, you're not just stretching and moving slowly, but you're doing the slow rhythmic diaphragmatic breathing, and that mm-hmm. kind of calms you down and slows down your your fight or flight system. So that's another benefit. 
Well, gee, Tiff, do you think that the EE program would be helpful for it? Gee, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Talk about calming you down. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I have had um, experience um, teaching EE to people who have uh, chronic pain situations, and um, some of them have have reported pretty miraculous um, results from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, calming down that uh, flight or fight mechanism and and really kind of getting out of that stress response because a lot of times uh you know pain can i mean it certainly is exacerbated by being in a stressed out situation Mm -hmm. um but sometimes even uh you know going back to uh dr hanscom was it his name um talking haskam yeah who, who was talking about um you know doing kind of emotional um you know writing exercises to try and uh to de-stress and kind of get those negative emotions out as a way of kind of dealing with this, these chronic pain situations. So there is a very strong stress connection there. So the uh, Aero Olas uh, breathing program that we often promote on this show is, is definitely something that would be helpful. Yeah, if our listeners aren't aware uh, of, of, of that program, it's uh, E-I-R-I-U-E-O-L-A-S.org. That's where you can see more about it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess this might be a good time to go to the uh, the pet health segment. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah. Our friend, has some friends information need for us. Some, some pain management tips, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's do that, and then we'll wrap up when we come back. Hello. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I'm going to share with you information regarding pain management in your pets. First of all, there is a need to distinguish between acute and chronic pain. Acute pain usually follows an injury. The injury can be accidental, as in the case of a strain, a sprain or fracture, or intentional, as in the case of a surgical incision. Chronic pain is usually associated with arthritis or periodontal disease. Conventional medications, including opioids, drugs similar to morphine, for example, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications work very uh, well in the pet with acute pain. Nowadays, many veterinarians try and practice preventive analgesia, administering pain-relieving medications before intentionally doing something, such as surgery, that might cause pain. This preventive analgesia decreases the need for extended post-operative pain and is a very holistic way to approach pain relief using medications. Chronic pain is another matter. While medications can be useful, in this case often holistic approach is preferable. Most animals with chronic pain, especially that from arthritis, show slower movements, difficulty getting up and down, may wince or growl if touched or handled over the painful part, and may show exercise intolerance. Dogs showing any of these signs should be evaluated to uh, determining the exact cause of the pain. The main benefits of a natural approach to pain relief is the obvious lack of side effects that can be seen with conventional drugs, including sedation, gastrointestinal ulceration, kidney or liver disease, and the potential to damage already diseased cartilage in, in the arthritic pet. There are several options for treating the pet with chronic joint disease and pain. 
This include acupuncture, magnetic therapy, homeopathy, herbal therapy, and the well-accepted use of nutritional therapy. No one therapy fits every pet, and the ultimate decision as to which therapy should be tried depends on a number of factors, including cost and convenience for the owner. When it comes to nutritional therapy, the most well-known nutritional supplements include shark and bovine cartilage, glucosamine, and chondroitin supplements. These supplements are used for two purposes. First, as with conventional analgetic medicines, these supplements can relieve pain and inflammation without the side effects mentioned before. Second, unlike conventional therapies that can actually further damage the joint uh, cartilage, these therapies uh, supply molecules to nourish and heal the cartilage. These popular complementary therapies are also most well known to conventional veterinarians and are employed by many conventional doctors as first-line therapy for dogs with chronic arthritis. This means that even if your doctor is not a holistic doctor per se, uh, he is still likely to be able to prescribe one of these uh, nutritional supplements to help your pet. Now a bit more about pain management. The same drugs used to control pain in people can be used successfully in dogs and cats. Dogs and cats often require more medication per kilo to relieve pain. Pain in dogs and cats is a legitimate reason to dispense medications. We must learn to cue on other factors than we do in people when judging the degree of pain in a dog or cat. It is hard to objectively judge the severity of pain in human beings and even more difficult to do so in animals. Our thresholds to pain differ markedly between people and from one animal to another. Pain perception depends on species, breed, age, gender, time of day and individual temperament. Pain may be experienced more at animal hospital than at home. Young animals tend to have a lower threshold to pain. Older and debilitated pets may not show much response to pain but feel it just the same. Hunting and work breeds of dogs are more stoic, uh, they are, they are more stoic and resistant to pain than toy and miniature breeds. Signs of pain are subtle, subtler in cats than in dogs. If anything, veterinarians probably underestimate the degree of pain patients are in before there is no direct way to, because there is no direct way to measure it. You, the pet, uh, the pet's owner is more likely to notice signs of pain because you are more attuned to your own pet. In one of the previous shows, I already talked about signs and symptoms of pain in pets. Beside behavior, Pain alone can actually change the results of blood chemistry analysis. Dogs and cats in pain may have elevated blood sugar. Their blood cortisol and white cell levels can increase. Pain can also, uh, also interfere with the immune system, increase the risk of infections and slow the healing of wounds in surgery. Complete elimination of pain is often impossible and undesirable, but it can be minimized with medications. There are five major classes of medicine that can be used to control pain in dogs and cats. Many of these medications can be used in cats can be used in cats only with extreme caution. There are some general rules when using pain control medications in dogs and cats. The first is to try to give the medication early before the pain becomes too intense. The second is that it is usually safer and more effective to give two or more medications that have different modes of action, 
rather than a higher dose of a single medication. Older patients should receive lower doses less frequently than younger, more robust pets. It is also wise to check kidney and liver function when using pain control medication in older pets. There are many pain medications and some of them are more controversial than others and some can be used quite safely for a limited period of time. As a responsible owner, you can do your own research and also ask your veterinarian to provide you with explanation about the pain management protocols. And now a bit about natural treatment for dogs with arthritis. When treating arthritic dogs holistically, the first factors to examine are their lifestyle, especially their weight and exercise. Obese and even mildly overweight pets have more mobility problems. Often weight loss and a reduction of the stress to, on the joints is sufficient to help these pets regain normal function. A species-appropriate, meat-based fresh food diet often works best. A varied raw meat base is even better. Many dogs uh, that seem arthritic and uh, act old can be helped by eating the proper diet. In addition to reducing the carbohydrates, fillers and grains that are found in most commercial pet foods, there are certain foods to avoid. Some food, uh, foods can worsen inflammatory diseases and even primarily harm joint function. Unfortunately, dietary analysis is often uh, overlooked during conventional veterinary care. Certain fats, sugars, milk products, and anything in the nightshade family can worsen arthritic symptoms. Nightshades include potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants. Conversely, specific foods uh, can help reduce the inflammatory products that produce pain. Deeply colored vegetables and fruits are packed with uh, phytonutrients and vitamins that can help. Once all lifestyle factors have been addressed, some veterinarians prefer then to prescribe a homeopathically chosen medicine to help the body to heal. Homeopathic treatment is gentle and is proposed to directly address the vital force that created the arthritic symptoms, not just cover them up. However, as I said before, joint supplements can also be very effective in a short period of time. There is, this is okay, but it's important to realize that these natural drugs are not addressing the underlying problem and can actually slow overall improvement by manipulating symptoms. Nutritional supplements work best for dogs who eat inadequate diets, such as dry food. Uh, modify the diet if these pets and the need for, of these pets and the need for supplementation often vanishes. Another often overlooked and inexpensive helpful dietary modification is the addition of bone broth to the diet. Single ingredient supplements that help arthritic dogs include uh, glucosamine sulfate, uh, boswellia, curcumin, and turmeric, etc. Some of these uh, have been well researched and are quite effective. The next most common natural modification are acupuncture and uh, chiropractic care. Like homeopathy, these can work well and do so through stimulation of the body's innate healing ability. Be cautious to select a truly holistic practitioner if you elect to use one of those modalities. It is relatively easy but potentially very harmful to misuse any treatment that works at the level of the life force. 
Acupuncture especially has been widely adopted by conventional veterinarians. Physical therapy can markedly improve function as well. Proper therapy and uh, rehabilitation after orthopedic surgery is critical for helping regain full function and reduce arthritic changes. Gentle massage is also inexpensive, easy to learn, and very effective at uh, relieving arthritic discomfort, especially when combined with heat. Even if you are feeding a great fresh food diet, doing chiropractic and, uh, treatment and acupuncture, your dog may still suffer from arthritic pain. In such cases, there is no choice but to use conventional pain relief medications. Just remember that if you are using those, if you are using those, add a herbal intestinal protectant, like, for example, liquid aloe vera, slippery elm, uh, licorice, etc. This all uh, can help reduce intestinal upset and ulceration. Well, this is it for today. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs> Those are some pain-free goats. Huh. <laughs> Those are great tips. Uh, I can attest to uh, <clears throat> our dog... Um, got arthritis in her hips or developed arthritis. Uh, and, uh, when we moved her to the raw food diet, uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, I don't know if it's gone away a hundred percent, but she's so much better. Like she was actually having a hard time, like getting up the stairs or like jumping into the truck. Uh, and now she's like a puppy. Mm. She's like almost 12 years old and she wow. runs around like a yak. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just the raw food diet alone. I think is a huge uh, um, benefit yeah. for for dogs, dogs and cats. Mm-hmm. So, well, um, unfortunately, I don't have a recipe for today. I apologize. <laughs> if you guys have something at hand, you're you're welcome to give it. But uh, maybe we could say that our mm-hmm. our recipe is don't use opioids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not what's for dinner. Yeah, zero teaspoons of opioids. But yeah, that's our our show for today. Uh, We appreciate everybody listening in and participating in the chat. uh, And uh, hope that, you know, if if any of you guys or or any of your friends or family are experiencing, um, you know, chronic or acute pain, um, maybe just, uh, you know, spread the word about this information. you know, maybe they haven't thought that there are alternatives uh, to mm-hmm. pharmaceutical painkillers. Uh, and if it hasn't crossed somebody's uh, field of awareness, um, you know, you, you never really know. You don't want to be pushy about it, but you can bring it up and say, hey, check this out. And uh, you might help somebody, you know, avoid uh, a long stint with addiction to opioids, uh, yeah. which, mm-hmm. you know, there's always that chance. So. Um, we will be back uh, next week. Uh, we encourage everybody to check out the SOT uh, radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Uh, and if you are not in the Eastern time zone, go to radio.sot.net on Sunday and the, the time will show, uh, the airtime will show in your local time zone there. Um, so be sure to check that out. And thanks again, everybody. We'll be back uh, next week. Okay. Bye, Bye everybody. Everyone.